good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll catch up with two of the dancers in Joffrey Ballet's new production of Frankenstein. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about a new musical adaptation of Brett Easton Ellis' once-controversial novel, American Psycho. Later in the show, we'll look back at the history of the Fine Arts Building as it turns 125. And saxophonist Sean Maxwell joins me in studio to talk about his latest album, which was inspired by his hometown of Juliet. All that's coming up, but first, before we get into the show, a quick reminder, we're in the middle of our fall pledge drive. We only call on you a couple times a year, and this is one of those times. The arts section needs your support. Please make a contribution by calling 630-942-5299 or visit wdcb.org to make a pledge online. It's you listeners who make this type of programming possible. Arts coverage is diminishing across the country and here locally. So if this is something you value, please support it. Give us a call, 630-942-5299, or go online to wdcb.org and make a donation. Thanks, and now on with the show. Mary Shelley's 1818 novel Frankenstein has been the source material for countless adaptations over the years. The gothic tale has inspired numerous films, plays, comic books, and even a ballet. In 2016, London's Royal Ballet presented a world premiere choreographed by the late Liam Scarlett. That adaptation has made its way to Chicago. The Joffrey Ballet is kicking off its 68th season this week with a production of Scarlett's Frankenstein. While there's definitely some darkness, the ballet leans closer to Shelley's novel than any of the film adaptations many people might be more familiar with. When you think about Frankenstein, you think about the green monster with the bolts coming out of his yeah. head, and then you're like, wow, that's Frankenstein. But in reality, Frankenstein is the doctor, right. and the monster is just the creature. The creation. He, the, yeah, he is called the creature. He doesn't even get to have a name because right. he's so disgusting. This is Joffrey Ballet company member Stefan Gonsalves. He plays the creature in this new production. I caught up with him and fellow lead dancer J.P. Castro, who portrays Dr. Victor Frankenstein, to learn more about what it's been like bringing Miss Ballet to life. Gonsalves says he watched a DVD version of the Royal Ballet production of Frankenstein a few years ago with Joffrey artistic director Ashley Weeder. I watched it once. I watched it with Ashley. He showed it to me, and I was like, that was many, like a few years ago. And I was like, Ashley, this is an amazing production, we need to do this. Like, this is such a great opportunity for the company. It's so beautiful and I think people are gonna love it, especially Chicago audiences. So he was like, oh yeah, I mean, we're, we're trying to figure it out with the other companies and stuff. And then I bought the DVD this past Christmas and then I, I just watched it because I loved it so much. Mm-hmm. And then they announced it that we were gonna do it and I was like, oh my God, that's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> is that the, the Royal Ballet production? Yes, yeah. it was with the Royal. 
Castro has also utilized the Royal Ballet DVD to get a sense of how the story unfolds on stage. I just kind of got into rehearsals and started learning it, and then as I was learning, I would watch or would go home and, and watch back what I just learned, and then the story would kind of make sense. So yeah, that was my introduction. I really didn't have anything prior to that. Right. But the choreographer did a really good job at making sure that the story is being told to its fullest. So yeah, it's pretty, pretty clear. Original yeah. to the book, yeah. not from the movies. Adapting the 200-year-old, 250-plus page story into a wordless ballet requires an intense focus on every movement on stage. There's very like clear gestures that we make, like for example, like when I propose to Elizabeth, um, I kneel down on one knee and I like am holding her hand and then she nods yes. Also like with our expressions, like if we're super joyful, then we're expressing that with our movement, which is a little more like ippy and like happy, and then also like we're smiling and and you know things like that. And then when it turns into being angry and mad, we really show that frustration not only in our movement, which it can turn a little bit more aggressive in the sense that it's more like sharp and then also with the music it picks up as well, but then with our faces as well that we really show that emotion through through our face even though we're not speaking or or saying anything. Yeah, I mean in the DVD um, there's a section where he's working with Moreda. She's the original Elizabeth at the Royal and she's actually here um, coaching us on everything and in that one specific section of the DVD you want to express an emotion without in simple moments where it's like it doesn't always have to be in the choreography and big movements it's like the simplest gestures that he's trying to portray from the character to the audiences it doesn't always have to be big it's like a small simple gesture with their hand or their head is something that can really make it clear to the audiences instead of a big movement and people might miss it. Our gestures and our movements and that's something that they're very um, focusing on us. It's like what is the meaning behind our movement? Why are we having this interaction? Why am I trying to say with this step or with this gesture or with this head movement? So they're very keen on that so it's very clear to audiences what we're trying to say. So I think he did a very stunning job. To add to that, I think something that they've been, with the whole like being super focused about having that um, almost like a dialogue, which in reality they're they're asking us to have a dialogue in our heads of like what is it that we're saying in the moment or what is it that we're trying to express. So having that dialogue really helps bring it out into movement and into just gestures and facial expressions because, again, we don't have the words to use them. But having those words in your mind is really helpful. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Joffrey Ballet dancers Stefan Gonsalves and J.P. Castro. They're the two leads in the company's new production, Frankenstein, which opens on Thursday, October 12th. Gonzalez has the unique challenge of dancing in the role of the creature. Its way of moving had to differ from everyone else on stage. Are your movements different than the rest of the, the cast? Yes. The creature movements is definitely different 
because he was made up from different body parts. So he has body parts from like people that have killed killers and all these people that have done really bad and he's made up of that. And so his movement is a little more, he doesn't understand. It's like a baby in a grown body that has been put together. So he struggles with movement. He struggles with um, interacting with people. He struggles with speaking. And so it's definitely a little more, it's a little like a, a child or like a baby, like a newborn. It's, tr it's like seeing a newborn as an adult. And so he struggles with his movement. He struggles with his thoughts, with how he yeah, interacts bit, with people. He starts off a bit like clumsy. Yeah, yeah. Especially at the creation scene, once he's first created, he just gets so overwhelmed with everything that's around him that he just smashes glasses and just bumps in, into everything around him and just runs away. Yeah. So it's very overwhelming. Is that unique to any other part you've danced? Oh, yeah. I mean, the creature is definitely a very complex character to play because it's not your usual prince where you're, you're like in a noble family and you have proper manners, which is something that actually you see um, the creature learning these proper manners with um, Victor's brother, little brother. He, um, the creature is out in the woods and he sees his nanny teaching him all these proper manners, how to bow, how to interact with people, and the creature is slowly learning in the back how to do those things. And you see him trying to mimic what William, which is Victor's little brother, is learning. So it's quite interesting. You see all the learning process that the creature is going through throughout the ballet. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. In the name of God. I know what it feels like to be God. I know on some of the film adaptation, the big scene is when Dr. Frankenstein brings the creature to life. We won't get into spoilers, but is that portrayed in a way? That's a huge scene. It's at the end of Act One, and not with, without giving too much away, but it is very exciting. It's a, it's a long solo for Victor, which is Victor Frankenstein. It's very literal in the sense that he is actually grabbing limbs like body parts from a cooler and putting them together into this body um, that is laying on a table like a laboratory um, and then you see him like sewing the the limbs and then it like just basically putting the body together and then the electricity and you see sparks happening and like there's like a lot going on in projections and it's it's just a really really cool scene not only to watch it but i think also being part of it it's 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 super cool like we got to be on stage um a few weeks ago to try out mm -hmm. like all the all the things just to make sure that we're safe and everything and that everything's working out and just to familiarize our, ourselves with them and just being on stage with all of that happening is extremely rewarding and it's super cool. Like we don't often get to experience something like that. So yeah, it's a huge scene. There's explosions <laughs> and big sounds and just people lifting up in the air. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's a lot happening. It's Yeah, it's really it's really, really cool. Yeah, it's a great scene. It's really fun. I just read in general that the set design's pretty amazing. Oh yeah. I mean it's super neat. Not only the set design but the costume design the makeup for the creature as well it's so realistic john mcferlane he is the the designer 
he he's like he's a genius. He's done multiple sets for multiple companies and huge choreographers, and it's it's huge. It's a huge production, and it's、mm. so well made, and it's so well done. The costumes are stunning. The makeup is great. There are wigs, and, and yeah. it's yeah, and he fits the dramatization of the ballet. They both, the choreography and the sets, they work so well together. It just really, it's, it's ba- it's basically a classic being done now for the future. I feel like yeah, it, for sure. There's nothing minimalistic about the sets or costumes in this ballet. Whereas like new choreographies, you often see that they're more. Like minimalistic, where like a house is just like a square with a window. Like this one, you actually see it's like a mansion, and you have the door with a gate and six windows, it's and it's all like the way up to it's the, three to the stories. Like yeah, it's it's like opera level, which is very exciting to be、mm. around as well. Like we, because again, we don't always get to experience things like these. If it sounds like there's an extra level of familiarity between Castro and Gonzalez, it's not just because they're the two leads in this new production; they're also partners in real life. And while the two characters don't share much stage time together, they're both featured prominently in the marketing campaign for the production. As you can see in the pictures and in the the video, I think it brings out a really good connection. Yeah, it's it's a it's a genuine connection, and it's actually a little bit harder too because then. It's like, but we do love each other. But it's like, but you wanna kill me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have like a a rule after rehearsal. You don't talk about Frankenstein, or do you guys still we talk? Try, we try not to talk about the negative stuff. We try to stay positive. Yeah. Just trying to keep things positive. They're both hoping audiences who come see Frankenstein leave with a new appreciation for this sometimes misunderstood story and character. The story is about humanity, but I do feel like there is a sense of that our society does, where we sometimes prejudge people by what they look or what they have or who they know, and we judge them by that instead of actually getting to know them as a person. Because the creature is not a monster; the creature is a very kind soul who really cares for people and just. Wants to have some sort of interaction and relationship with someone. It's he's it's it's a kind soul, but people just treat him so poorly just because of his looks. So he just suffers from that, and all he wants is to be able to have someone that can just touch him without wanting to hurt him, just like give him a hug, or you know, just to show that they care for him, and that's an interaction that he's never had. And so I feel like that really can come across to in today's. Where we just judge people by how they look instead of getting to know who they really are and what they have to bring as a person. Just adding to it, it's like something that people should really take away from the show is that don't judge a book by its cover. Even though, yeah, it's Frankenstein and it's like Halloween time and everything, like it's not a scary ballet. Like you're not gonna be like haunted when you go home and you're not gonna you're not gonna have nightmares about it. I mean, maybe you will, but. Because it's so neat and so literal and so epic with the costumes and and everything and the makeup, but taking away that it truly is just about finding that connection that the creature wants with his creator to begin with, but then seeing that he doesn't want anything to do with it, and then trying to find that with other people, and then people just pushing him away and not wanting anything to do with him. So yeah, it's just very touching, and especially like at the end, just. Just you wait. <laughs> I know there's a big twist at the end. It's quite, 
it's quite like, oh my God, I get goosebumps every time I think about yeah. it. It's crazy. It's very unexpected. And it's different from the book. Because of popular culture, people think of Frankenstein as horror, and there is like some scary elements, but it's really just like super sad, like a sad story of something being brought to life with no one to love. Joffrey Ballet's Chicago premiere of Frankenstein opens Thursday, October 12th and continues through Sunday the 22nd. You can find more information at joffrey.org. And a quick reminder, we're in the midst of our fall pledge drive here at WDCB. If you enjoy the program you hear on the station, please give us a call, 630-942-5299, or visit wdcb.org. You can make your contribution online. We really need your support to keep this type of programming on the air. Thanks for tuning in this morning. And you are listening to the art section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good morning Gary. And if you like your musicals with some 80s flavor and splattered in blood, we've got the show for you. Co-Candy Productions is presenting the Chicago premiere of American Psycho the Musical. Brett Easton Ellis's controversial 1991 novel spawned a cult classic film adaptation starring Christian Bale in 2000. Thirteen years later, a musical adaptation opened in London. Music and lyrics by Duncan Sheik. Book by playwright and screenwriter Roberto Aguirre-Sacasa. A few years later, it made its way to Broadway for what ended up being a pretty brief run. And now it's here in Chicago. If you're not familiar with the novel or film, the story centers around Mr. Patrick Bateman, a young, successful investment banker who's obsessed with status and material things. He's also a homicidal maniac. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. Carrie, what did you think? You know, I think that this is a very stylish show. You did say a bloodbath. It's very stylized violence in this Candy Productions presentation. Um, I was thinking about the fact that last year Jonathan and I reviewed Kakandi's production of Sweeney Todd, which is also a slasher musical of a sort. Uh, there's, I think, more depth to Sweeney than there is to American Psycho, but I think that that's kind of by design. Alice has gone on record as saying he was trying to satirize the go-go, you know, 80s era, especially in New York when uh, you know, people started making astronomical amounts of money on Wall Street, young people, you know, snapping up property, a certain uh, real estate mogul of the era who later went on to, let's say, other things, is one of the <laughs> idols from Patrick Bateman, and he is, you know, the, the man who uh, allegedly wrote The Art of the Deal is referenced more than once. So in terms of, is this a deep, you know, dive into the roots of commercialism, narcissism, you know, exploitation of capitalism. Not at all. Is it a fun time at the theater? I would say yes. And I think that this production really sort of 
leans into the idea of it being like a fashion show. Literally, it's staged on like a you know a, a a catwalk, like a runway. I don't know that the songs are for things that you'll leave the theater humming. And there are also pop songs of the era, like Everybody Wants to Rule the World in the Air Tonight, that are sort of interspersed with Duncan Cheek's originals. But I found it highly watchable, and um, at times even a little engrossing. Jonathan, what did you think? Well, I think it's a well-imagined and well-performed production, as we have come to expect from Kokandi Productions, so they're up to their, their standards. You know, it is a gruesome and violent story, and I gather from what I have read that other productions staged it as a true splatterfest with stage blood everywhere, and this issue has been eliminated by the Chicago director, Derek Van Barham, who is using instead airy red confetti thrown up in the air to indicate blood spurts instead of using any kind of liquid gore. But even so, there's the deeply rooted misogyny of the villainous character. You know, we've already mentioned him, Patrick Bateman, super empowered, narcissistic, but also self-loathing, while Wall Street whiz. But the thing about the misogyny is that he hates men just as much. I'm a man, so I can't say whether that kind of sort of balances it out or not. Uh, Carrie, you might want to have the last <laughs> word. But, you know, I think the debate is whether or not this material of, like this is suitable for musical theater at all. Uh, for me, Patrick Bateman has no redeeming qualities whatsoever. So I really don't care what happens to him. He isn't Sweeney Todd, the vengeful barber, whose sure. life was destroyed by a corrupt judge so you understand what's going on we never learn the reasons patrick bateman is a psychopath because as you noted the musical is shallower about this than either the film or the original novel but maybe because we don't learn enough about him maybe that's why i can't care about him yeah i think that that's a fair point um i think he's riveting in a way but are you going to be um, find any kind of, well i would hope that nobody would find any kind of emotional attachment to patrick bateman <laughs> that said i think the the performance performance by Kyle Patrick is very smart, very charismatic. And, and you know, this, this is a tricky thing. I think it's staging something that's about so much surface that it can't be so much surface that that's all we get. But as you've noted, Jonathan, he doesn't have the kinds of motivations that Sweeney Todd has. We're not going to necessarily ever feel like, oh, I need to understand his motivations. There's, there's, there's this hollowness and this, this essential nihilism at the heart of of his story, even with a twist that we won't get into here that suggests that maybe not everything is exactly as, as it's been laid out for us, that makes it, you know, I think, hard to connect with him at any kind of human level, <laughs> uh, which is why, again, I think presenting this as kind of a fashion show of the damned is the smart way to go. Um, and I think, again, as I also thought somewhat with the, the production of Sweeney, Kakandi has really learned how to use this downstairs space, the Chopin Theater. You know, it's low ceiling, it's dark, um, to kind of really evoke this sort of environmental uh, staging. Um, the the characters that uh, Bateman interacts with are often present you know, on, on, on various sides of the runway. So you get the sense that he is somebody who likes to be watched, who likes to be witnessed. He needs to be at the center of attention when he's not. Um, he lashes out, or he'll lash out to the pettiest of things. Um, <laughs> Why, I'm surprised he hasn't run for president. <laughs> well, oh. particularly given the, given the aforementioned role model, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, I, I, you know, I agree. This production is intimate 
and uh, the audience is, is seated not two feet away from the performers. And it's a unique staging. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, all of it is done on a runway, a, a long, narrow platform with audience on both sides. There isn't any real dance, but the highly regarded choreographer, Brian Arzell, has created very varied and effective musical staging using a fairly large cast, 16 people. Right. But he uses them so the repetitious lines along the platform never grow stale. And he's also given the, the lead actor, Kyle Patrick, who is extremely lithe and limber. He's given him some acrobatic moves, which Kyle Patrick handles with a plum. He also has a strong voice, maybe not a great voice, but a strong voice, which is suitable for the role. And he really nails, as you've already said, Kerry, he really nails Bateman's icy personality wrapped in a pretty package. Right. And, you know, that I think also the trick of this show is that for the most part, with the exception of maybe one or two characters, the people that Pat, uh, Patrick Bateman surrounds himself with, including his very materialistic, you know, fiance, his fellow stockbrokers, their, their circle of friends, friends with quotes, you know, <laughs> around them, because everything is transactional in this world, are, are kind of so repellent to us that there's a, that little trick of, well, gosh, would it be the worst thing if he went after some of these people? <laughs> yeah. And there, yeah, again, without giving anything away, there is one character who is more sympathetic, that I, who is perhaps the one person we do sort of root for in this. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, because Duncan Sheik was perhaps best known in musical theater world for the musical of Spring Awakening, which also dealt with very tough and very seemingly difficult subjects to musicalize, you know, uh, illegal abortion, young men coming to grips with their homosexuality in, in you know, in parochial provincial Germany in the 19th century. I feel like the music for that was much more successful only in terms of the, also in terms of the fact that we cared more about those characters. Those kids in Spring Awakening are much more sympathetic than the, you know, than the mannequins that we see yeah, in American yeah. Psycho. So I don't know that it's really the fault of Sheik as a composer as it is. How do you how do you make these characters fully alive for us in the yeah, way that he yeah. was able to do a Spring Awakening? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with all that. Uh, the songs, and this is one of the reasons you have musicals, the songs allow, and they enlarge, they allow some moments and scenes to be exaggerated, such as the hoopla over who has the perfect business card at the, be <laughs> at the beginning, and exaggerated to the point where they reach a darkly satirical, cartoon-like proportion. And I think that's also part of Roberto aguirre Sacara's, uh influence, uh, on the writing of the book. Right. Uh, the exaggerations also take the, if I can use the phrase, sharp edge off of the violence and gore. <laughs> but, you know, it's the, the music by Duncan Sheik is fairly, I agree with you, fairly generic, punkish rock, not as, uh, as notable as in Spring, Spring Awakening. And I'm a little puzzled by the inclusion of five other well-known songs by other composers. They stand out because they're musically different from Sheik's music. Right. So uh, I, I'm not sure why he did that. Heidi Justin is the musical director for this production, and she's done top-notch work with the cast and the musicians. I think the inclusion of the pop hits is something that uh, is kind of a reference or, you know, callback. In the novel, Bateman is always, a, you know, like literally I think there's an entire chapter where he's dissecting the genius of Huey Lewis in the news. So I think that, that his 
a obsession with pop music is kind of perhaps being referenced there. But I agree, it's a little jarring because these songs that are very memorable to us, and some of them are quite good for, for the for the 80s pop era, kind of stand in an odd juxtaposition a little bit with the other songs that, that Chic has created. Yeah. You know, there's, yeah. there's also very surreal, there are some little surreal touches. There's an ATM, a talking ATM, that undergoes <laughs> its own uh, <laughs> you know, very funny but very dark transformation during the course of the show. Um, so it's, there's always these little elements of the surreal that, again, I think pop really well in a more intimate staging. I, of course, do not see the New York staging, but this is another example of a show that I think maybe works better when, when you're a little closer up to it. Um, yes, some of the flaws might be more apparent, but I think also there's a little bit more of a connection with the kind of the inherent grit. But as you mentioned, Jonathan, this is not a bloodbath. Um, there is no splash zone. You don't need to worry about, you know, uh, a bucket of, of gore being dumped on your head a la Carrie. Um, <laughs> it is very stylized with, with red ribbons and the red and the, uh, you know, the red confetti coming out at the, at the coup de grace moment, shall we say. Yeah, yeah. Now, well, you know, some some of the reviews, uh, and the show opened about a week ago, and some of the reviews have said, you know, American Psycho the Musical is creepy fun for the Halloween season. And I guess I'll grant it that, in part because, we, as we just pointed out, you don't see the literal wounds that Bateman inflicts on people, though they are sometimes discussed, and because of the ambiguous ending, which is really the same as the movie and right. the novel. But even so, I don't know if I had to actually pay money to see the show, <laughs> as opposed to getting our complimentary press tickets. Uh, I, I don't think that I would, if I knew what it was about, I don't think I would pay out my own money to see the show, you know, I, where I, I would and have to see Sweet yeah. Todd. Right. And I think there's, you know, for me, part of the retrospect being, you know, kind of a young person in the 80s and kind of hating the people that I knew around me who were, you know, basically Patrick Bateman's in training, although I don't know that any of them went on to commit mass murder. You know, but that sort of, you know, go, go, get the money, don't care about anybody else, you know, kind of lionizing that kind of lifestyle. So there is a throwback to that, and we can perhaps, it's interesting to see, because of the references to Trump, what's the connection yeah. between that era and this one. So from a sociological standpoint, I would say for myself, there were certainly things where I'm like, oh, yes, I remember people like that, and they never really went away. <laughs> but is that necessarily, again, a stunning insight? You know, I think the thing is, for me, serial killers are not that inherently interesting. I'm the person who read Devil in the White City and was most gripped by the project management of the World's Fair. <laughs> That's the stuff that hit me on the other. Like, even though I knew it came off without a hitch, thinking, oh my God, that building has collapsed twice. Can mm -hmm. they finish this? And then, oh yes, then there's H.H. Holmes doing what serial killers do, being terrible, killing people, and eventually, in his case at least, getting caught because, you know, nobody's a, nobody's a mastermind criminal forever and ever, right? So I think that that's part of it, too, that, yes, there's an American fascination with serial killers. I won't say that I'm completely immune to it, but I do feel that their entertainment value is perhaps overstated in our culture to some extent. So we could sum this up by saying it's a semi-satirical Halloween period piece. I think that's fair, absolutely. Yeah. Or to to go back to that era of the late eighties, nineties, as as Michael Douglas famously said in the film <laughs> Wall Street, greed is good. <laughs> Co-Candy's production of American Psycho the Musical continues through November twenty sixth. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, welcome, Gary. Welcome. This is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. Hey.
Anyone entering the Fine Arts Building in Chicago is greeted with a phrase above either of the entrances. It reads, All passes, art alone endures. True in a general sense, great art stays with us, always, but also prophetic in terms of the structure at 410 South Michigan Avenue. The building has served as a hub of creative activity since 1898. That art alone message, which was inspired by a 19th century French poem, has welcomed visitors to the Fine Arts Building for a century and a quarter. The Fine Arts Building is celebrating its milestone 125th anniversary this year with some special offerings, including two new exhibits, a self-guided tour, and some additional programming. I recently visited the Chicago Landmark on a weekday afternoon to ride the manually operated elevators, walk through the storied hallways, and check out the new exhibits. I caught up with the Fine Arts Building's Managing Artistic Director, Jacob Harvey, to learn more about the history of 410 South Michigan Avenue. While the Fine Arts Building was born in 1898, the structure itself opened 13 years earlier as something else. So originally, this building was the Studebaker carriage showroom and repository. They had offices on the upper floors, and in the windows on Michigan Avenue, they had carriages, storefront windows, and what is now the Studebaker Theater was a showroom, was a carriage showroom. Once the Studebakers outgrew that space, the same architect who built that the building for them came back, Salon Beeman, and refashioned this building as the Fine Arts Building, and that was in 1898, so we're 125 years later. The arts building concept, did that come from new owners? No, the Studebakers still owned it at the time, which was really interesting. And eventually a coalition of folks in the Fine Arts Building sort of took over some management and ownership. And the building has changed owners several times, you know, over the last century and a quarter. But it's always remained the Fine Arts Building and it's always been a place for artists and this kind of incredible intersection of the fine and performing arts. After its reopening as the Fine Arts Building, word began to spread around Chicago about this new haven for the arts. So the original sort of manager of the building and artist curator, Charles Curtis, he was very intentional about building this community and shaping this community and, you know, what is important to the Fine Arts Building and understanding that and sort of building not only um, artistic community, but collaboration and incur- and there was a lot of collaboration among different tenants of the building, especially in the early years. And there were a lot of connections to other arts organizations too. So for example, there were a lot of tenants in the building that were also professors at the School of the Art Institute right down the street. Over the years, some pretty well-known tenants have called the Fine Arts Building home. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the first things that we did really in digging into and investing into the history of the building in order for us to start writing new chapters of a history book, we need to know what came before us. And so one of the first things that we did was go into different archives at different museums and, and different universities to understand who was here and what was the ecosystem of artists that were here. And so throughout the building, there are plaques now in front of studios that housed prominent tenants of the historical artists of the building, as well as honoring and commemorating tenants of the building that have been here for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You know, there are organizations that have been in this building for 50, 60 years. And so celebrating all of that, you know, the past and the present with keeping our eyes ahead to the future. So just to to highlight a couple, Frank Lloyd Wright stands out right away. 
Yeah, well, what's interesting about Frank Lloyd Wright is he gets a lot of mentions at the building, but what's interesting is he was actually only a tenant of the building for two months. And that two-month period, we believe, is when he was designing two really important spaces that are also commemorated in the building, which is the Thurber Art Galleries and the Brown Bookstore, right? So those those two spaces were designed by Frank Lloyd Wright, and so he was here at the time. But, I mean, you're right. There is no shortage of historic tenants, you know. Um, there is uh, William Denslow, who was the illustrator of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and he actually was first connected to L. Frank Baum here in this building. Um, on the 10th floor of the Fine Arts Building is where the Caxton Club was, and that's where they met and then started a collaboration that way. You know, there's also folks in the literary world like Margaret Anderson, who was the publisher of The Little Review, and they were the first American publisher to publish James Joyce's Ulysses, and they did it in, in sort of sections. Um, so there's there's no shortage of, of stories, and the more and more we, we dig, the more and more we find um, that this has always been sort of this magnetic epicenter for folks, for artists, literary, musical, and dance alike. You know, everybody sort of finds home here and finds this as sort of like a buzzing and creative atmosphere, you know. I have read things about the history of the building, and one of the things that always is mentioned that is still true today is the music in the hallway. You know, you can always hear voice lessons, musicians practicing. The Chicago Youth Symphony Orchestra is here. So on the weekends, you hear incredible young musicians playing throughout the building. That's still true, you know, and has always been sort of a wonderful little quirk and tidbit of the building is that, you know, you just walk through and the halls are literally, you know, vibrating with music. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the arts section. I'm talking about the Fine Arts Building. It's celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson recently declared October 13th as Fine Arts Building Day. Harvey says that date isn't the exact anniversary of the building's opening, but it's pretty close. It's not the exact, exact day, but it is the exact week. We are in the anniversary week right now. Nice. And so to commemorate the occasion, I know there's uh, lots of stuff going on. There's been stuff going on the whole year, but on uh, Friday the 13th, there's going to be some uh, special events going on at the building. Yeah, so to commemorate the 125th anniversary, uh, we are doing sort of a, a souped-up version of our you know, Second Friday tradition. Every second Friday of the month, uh, the artists and tenants of the Fine Arts Building open their studios, and it's sort of a uh, really amazing open house event that takes place at the Fine Arts Building every month. Um, this one is going to be extra special because it is the 125th anniversary. Uh, we are going to have activations on all 10 floors of the building. There's going to be live music uh, throughout the whole building and a very special concert at 7.30 p.m. in the Studebaker Theater. Dr. Yulia Litmanovich, who is also a tenant of the Fine Arts Building, is going to play a special concert on the Studebaker stage. 125 years ago, the Studebaker first opened with a piano recital by a pianist of the name Fanny Bloomfeld Zeisler. And in preparing for this concert, we were able to uncover the set list uh, and the program from the original concert. And Dr. Litmanovich is going to be replicating and playing some of those songs that originally opened the Studebaker 125 years ago. So it's a really special event. 
um, marking the 125th anniversary of the Fine Arts Building and the Studebaker Theater, and also celebrating the mayoral proclamation that Brandon Johnson bestowed on us, and uh, you know, to celebrate the the anniversary with Fine Arts Building Day. And I remember talking to you in the the spring about the anniversary and the building's history, and, and one of the hopes was for you was that more people would come out and kind of check out the building. Have you gotten a sense that more people are, are coming out to engage? Yeah, it's it's really incredible. Um, the foot traffic in the building is significantly increased noticeably, um, and people are coming to visit the exhibits, and it's, it's you know, it, people are interacting with the building and engaging with it exactly as we had hoped, which is you know, we are picturing the fine arts building as though it's a living, breathing museum, right? A living museum that people can come with and interact with, learn about the history of the museum, explore all 10 floors. There's plaques all over the building that people can learn about different historic and prominent tenants of the fine arts building. And we have a map on our website that people can go to and sort of choose your own adventure through the building and visit one of three new exhibits in the building that also honor the history of the building, one on the Studebaker Theater, one on the history of the building and some of its most prominent tenants, and then a little bit more about theater in the Fine Arts Building, uh, most prominently Chicago's Little Theater. Um, So, yes, uh, more and more people are being welcomed into the Fine Arts Building, and it's really incredible to see. That's Jacob Harvey. He's the Managing Artistic Director of the Fine Arts Building. It's celebrating its 125th anniversary as an arts hub at 410 South Michigan Avenue. The building will be hosting special programming 5 to 9 p.m. on Friday, October 13th to commemorate the anniversary. You can learn more at fineartsbuilding.com. You might have heard the building is going to be transitioning away from its iconic manually operated elevators in the next year and a half. I have a story on that decision coming up later this month, so stay tuned for that. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. Saxophonist Sean Maxwell has been a celebrated piece of Chicago's jazz scene for 25 years. Maxwell's ambitious approach to creating music has been praised by Downbeat Magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and the Jazz Times. Nearly 20 years after the release of his first album, Maxwell has returned to his roots for album number 12. The album which comes out this week is called J-Town Suite. The compositions are inspired by Maxwell's formative years coming up in Illinois' third largest city. Juliet. I recently caught up with Maxwell to talk about the new project and what it was like growing up in Juliet. So was this musical love letter to your hometown something that had been in the back of your mind for a while or was something in recent years that inspired you to to take this on? My last, this is my 12th album and especially in the last four or five, I always think, why am I doing this? In a good way, you know, why am I writing these these songs, these tunes? You know, is there an overall concept? If I'm just writing random things, I've done that, you know? So I'm always trying to think of what if I did an album about this or I did an album, this is the theme. 
And uh, my my business partner, Nick Iper, is the engineer, producer, and everything. He and I have meetings, and I bounce stuff off of him. And I've I've mentioned J-Town Suite, like, for the last four or five years. And he's like, nah, dude, I don't think that's what we should do. And then finally I said it, knowing he was going to say no. And he's like, okay, yeah, we should do that. He's like, you're obviously very passionate about it. You've been pitching it to me for years now. <laughs> and so each of the tunes on the album is inspired by something connected to your experience growing up in Joliet? Yeah, I mean, uh, born and raised in Joliet, Illinois. I lived there um, until I went off to college, and I still live in the area. And it, it, there's a lot of meaning there for me, uh, a lot of things that happened and a lot of places and people that kind of made me into the person I am, good or bad. <laughs> it comes from Joliet, and I just kind of, you know, I've been joking about doing it for a while, and it's like, you know what? Uh, I've written a lot of tunes. Why don't I actually cover this like this subject and actually just go for it? I think for for some people, they might have preconceived notions about what it's like in Joliet, <laughs> good or bad. Is that is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's a polite way of saying <laughs> it. I think I even say it in, in uh, Neil Tesser writes a liner notes. I, I wear that kind of as a badge of honor. You know, it's it's. Um, I am not a super tough guy, but. Uh, I've I've gone through some some rough things there, you know, and it, it was it, yeah. I guess that is an easy thing to say. The album's opening track, "Steelman March," is a nod to the band program at Maxwell's High School. Juliet Central High School was the first band program, school band program in the country, and it dates back. Um, the the original director, A. R. McAllister, uh, was friends with um, John Philip Sousa. <laughs> and back then, you know, marches and marching bands were all the big things. So the um, the fight song of the school was the Steelman March. It was a very marchy kind of thing in 4-4. And to kind of honor that, especially because I was going there in the 90s when I was listening to Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg and different things like that and rock stuff, um, I took the overall kind of premise of that, that march in 4-4 and I kind of made it a little more angular. I, I, I changed the time signature to five. So if you were marching, it's almost like you're marching with a limp and kind of made it a little uh, marching band meets a little bit of funkiness. So did you play in the the band? Oh yeah, I was a, I was a clarinet player. I, did, I didn't actually start saxophone until I got to Joliet Junior College. Right. But I was, yeah, I played clarinet from fourth grade all the way through high school. I was in the Joliet Central Band. We were really good back then. So I think probably the one of the things that, that people associate most with Joliet is the, the prison that operated there for years and you talk about this in your liner notes, too. You have a personal connection to that facility. My father was a guard there years and years ago. I was so young, I can vaguely remember it. Uh, I, I do remember him, and I, I was super young, and, and maybe I just dreamt this. I remember him telling me that he met uh, John Belushi when they were there uh, uh, filming mm-hmm. for Blues Brothers. Right. I believe that was the early 80s. I would have been very, very young. <laughs> but but yeah, I, I, I remember him being a guard there. And yeah, this, this tune is kind of 
a mixture of, of, of that and then also the, well, the stories and the jokes and the things that we've heard about <laughs> the, the prison over the years. The tune is called In the Shadow of Statesville, and that's in the facility in the next town over. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's kind of a combination of the old Joliet prison. I don't even think it's technically actually called Statesville. I just think a lot of Jolietans and people around, we just called it that. So I was kind of blending those two things into like one, just kind of poking fun at the whole thing. So for something like this, um, what's the the starting point for composing? We'll just use this one as an example in the shadow of Statesville. I I write for people, places, and things, and I've done that on all of my albums. Um, On this, it's just getting a concept, and with this, it's like, you know, well, overall on this album... There, on each composition, there's certain quality of chords, uh, more we'd call diminished or half diminished, a little more for those non-music majors out there. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a little spookier, scarier. It, it's just kind of weird and uh, not your typical quality of chord. I, I've based the whole album kind of around that. So there's even happy tunes on here that, that are written for people that mean a lot to me in a good way. They have that darkness to it as well. So we, we started kind of with that template for everything. And then for Statesville, where we're getting, I wanted something that, you know, was dark but pretty at the same time. And as you go through the track, it gets disturbingly more not pretty. <laughs> and then, then you kind of wind down and you come back to just um, almost a dysfunctional kind of sound at the end. I always want to be different. There are, uh, even just in the Chicago area, a ton of great saxophonists, composers, flautists, and, and I don't want to sound like any of them. And I think I, I take chords and put them in maybe unexpected ways or you know different, and in using that, it, it's, it's always been there for me. I think just as a whole, if you think of the whole album together, I've leaned into that much more and made it very consistent from tune to tune. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the art section. I'm talking with a renowned saxophonist Sean Maxwell about his new album, J-Town Sweet. You reference maybe like a more upbeat tune. And there's like a story behind this too. And I wanted to ask you about uh, the tune called Jerry. And this is somebody, I'll let you tell the story that was instrumental in your career but uh side note uh it says in the liner notes he's the person who who tuned you into uh wdcb yeah well first of all jerry lewis very important guy for me i started clarinet in fourth grade and i played clarinet i still play clarinet but i played strictly clarinet all the way through graduating high school joliet central high school and when i graduated i had no path i wasn't going to college i I just had no plan i don't know what i was going to do and a couple of weeks before classes started at Joliet Junior College, my parents, which I was still living with, sat me down and said, 
okay, dude, you're either going to school or you're moving out, and and uh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> so I, I signed up for classes at Joliet Junior College. I had known Jerry for several years before that because I was good friends with his son through high school. And at that point, you know, he just he knew me well enough. He pretty much he said, hey, you're going to be in jazz band. I'm going to get you a saxophone. And I was like, well, okay, I'm not going to fight with him. Thank God he did because, you know, I still do play clarinet, but I don't think I was going to be in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or anything like that. And then when I started at JJC, again, he got me a saxophone that I used for the two years I was there, was a great mentor. And he was talking to us. I was like, do you guys listen to jazz? And we're like, eh, no, not really. Where, where do you do that? Um, and then he's like, okay, you got to check out. There's a station called WDCP, 90.9 FM. And I think at the time, it you guys played jazz six hours a day or something oh, like that. Right, yeah. Like it, it's, it's expanded over the years, but he was like six hours straight every Monday <laughs> through Friday. And I do remember for us checking it out and then just listening to it nonstop. I do remember the first time, first time I heard Bruce Oscar wow. <laughs> introducing something. I was like, oh, okay. And yeah, that, that's, that's how I came across 90.9. Let's listen to a little bit of Jerry. So we all have kind of like, our, you know, these moments in our life that take us on different trajectories. Like, oh, what if that didn't happen? But that's kind of crazy for you. I mean, here you are, professional jazz player with 12 albums under your belt, but could have gone in a different direction, it sounds like. Totally. It's also just the kind of person I am now. I'm very goal-oriented. I, I have a path. I, I'm a scheduled person. And I'm thinking back to when I went to Joliet Junior College, I was just kind of nothing <laughs> i was just there you know and I, like i had no aspirations and i do think jerry getting into jazz getting the saxophone and then some other teachers and, and you know people driving me kind of got me on the right path to do this but yeah otherwise i, I have no idea you know i'd be coin attended at a car wash or something not not that that's a bad thing but you right. know not right. not not maybe not what i wanted to do did you realize pretty soon that you had uh, an aptitude for sax or is what started you on this path i liked it a lot i really enjoyed it and i really was I really got into jazz, just the whole aspect of it. I, I really like the fact that not only were you playing melodies that were composed, but the improvisation of it. And, and the fact that, you know, especially saxophone, well, this guy sounds like this, but this guy sounds like this, and this guy sounds like, and everyone had their own thing. And just having their own, a lot of them composing, that's, that's what really got in me in the beginning. And I, I remember Jerry uh, Lewis at JJC teaching a um, jazz appreciation class first time, and a lot of things I was learning about stuff, it's where I kind of learned who Duke Ellington was. And I remember him saying something like, Duke Ellington is not just jazz, but the most prolific American composer. And he said something like he has 100 or 200 like notable compositions. And, you know, I hadn't composed a single note at that point. But in my head, I was like, I want to write 100 tunes. <laughs> I think right. I think I've now on album, I have 130 compositions oh, out wow. there. So I'm getting close to Duke. And <laughs> I should recant that now because someone's going to say, you think you're Duke Ellington? <laughs> no, I did not say that. Uh, but um, yeah, I just liked all that. And you know, it took me several years. It wasn't until like really a year or two after college that I totally got my, my stuff together <laughs> and really kind of got on it. But 
Uh, yeah, just that whole thing, the fact that I can be me and not be like anyone else, even though might be some similarities, being me with the volume turned way up, that, that just seemed really cool to me. That'll be the, the headline when I post this story. Sean Maxwell... <laughs> I'm the next Duke Ellington. Yeah, just oh well, <laughs> you know, I guess if we get um, hate likes, or, <laughs> then then cool. The whole clarinet thing. So it was more of like a classical clarinet. Were you more into classical music? Yeah, yeah. And you know what? I love that, and I still play clarinet. It's just saxophone has become my main instrument. Flute's probably become my second instrument. Clarinets got bumped down to three, but uh, I still do a lot with that. I think I am what I am, and part of what makes me different is I have a very strong classical background. Music theory-wise, Just uh, I started taking clarinet lessons in fifth grade from a, a Joliet legend, a guy named Clayton Shorey. I think he passed away about 20 years ago, and I think he was like 110 or something like that. And he instilled in me a lot of basics that, in my opinion, a lot of jazz guys maybe gloss over or never do. Um, I'm very good at sight reading. I'm good at just reading actual hard clarinet classical music. So I went to saxophone. I had that kind of instilled in me already. And when I compose, I do a lot of things that kind of lead into my classical kind of chops. I think even if you hear me on this new album or any other albums, um, a lot of my technique and even sometimes I'll sometimes on purpose play what I call dorky jazz, just kind of some straight classical kind of stuff like that. But these days, what are you listening to? Do you listen to a lot of jazz or do you try to mix it up? I try to mix it up. I will be the first to tell you I am. I don't have my finger on the pulse of what's new and hip with the kids now. Uh, I've I've gotten comfortable enough to know that I'm maybe not official, but to them I'm the old guy. <laughs> I listen to all kinds of styles of music. I do um, mainly because I consider myself a modern jazz musician. I'm very interested in hearing what other more modern jazz musicians are doing throughout the country, or and I, even around the world, I should say. So I'm, I'm I have much more into that in jazz and I still listen to a lot of the, the classic you know standard jazz but I'd say more modern things with improvisation and just people who are trying to be different and, and not that I want to copy them but I'm always kind of listening and going like hmm well they did that what else can I do that's different because I just I don't I just don't want to be doing the same thing all the time right so at the the beginning I mean I, I use the term love letter to, to Juliet. <laughs> Working on this, did it bring up positive memories about coming up in, in Juliet? Well, in a weird way, I have a lot of positive and negative memories in Juliet, but in a weird way, they're all positive. Uh, because even bad things that happen, I, I, you know, I look at it and go, huh, well, that's, that made me tougher or, or, you know, that's just something that happened. I try to, maybe I'm getting that age where I just am seeing things more fondly than they really were. But no, no, I, I had a good time even on like subjects or whatever that we touch about that were maybe not the, the best memories. I, I had a great time just kind of fleshing that out and like turning it into a musical idea. It's a very dorky composer thing to say. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. Do you get to, do you go back often? My parents still live there. I I, uh, I played the Juliet Jazz Festival about a month or so ago, which was kind of cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm back there um, here and there. But yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it's Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the uh, like their tourism board. Like it's Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I try to go and hit uh, Joe's Hot Dogs every once in a while if I'm if I'm in town teaching a clinic or a gig or something like that. And you got a, a tune here that's inspired called Fries or Rings in the Back. Oh yeah, have you ever been to Joe's Hot Dogs? I haven't been, but I was oh, talking I, to my wife about it. I, I it's a Joliet like foundation that you have to go to. It's yeah. a business owned or a family owned uh, hot dog stand that I think it's changed since COVID, but they used to be open till 2 and 2 a.m. Oh, okay. And uh, if you order even a small fry, it comes in a huge brown paper bag that you can see through with all the, the grease. grease. Yep. Yeah, and it, it's it's just, uh, if you like to eat, uh, hopefully they're not getting mad at me, if you'd like to eat some great unhealthy food, especially in the middle of the night, that's the best place to be. <laughs> Coming up, you're going to celebrate the release of the album with two nights at, at Andy's. And you'll be playing. You'll be playing the whole album. We're gonna we're gonna mix up tracks from this album and our last three or four albums as well. Oh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're two sets. I think six and eight fifteen that Friday the thirteenth and Saturday the fourteenth. So I'd encourage everyone to get tickets because I know it's probably gonna sell out. They, right. They've been doing great with filling up. And the the album J Town Suite comes out this coming week. It'll be available actually on the 13th, and you can get it at seanmaxwell.com or Bandcamp or pretty much, uh, it sounds like a 90s cheesy tagline, anywhere music is sold. <laughs> well, Sean, thanks so much for, for coming in to talk with us. Thank you for having me, man. I had a blast. That saxophonist Sean Maxwell, his new album, J-Town Suite, comes out on Friday, October 13th. He'll be performing multiple sets at Andy's on the 13th and Saturday, October 14th. Go to andysjazzclub.com for more info on those performances and check out seanmaxwell.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website theartssection.org there you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show my name is gary zydek i hope you'll join me again next sunday morning at 8 a.m right here on 90.9 and 90.7 fm for another edition of the arts section until then i hope you have a great week Please continue to call and pledge your support, 630-942-5299, or go online to wdcb.org. Thanks for listening.